you can have that character grow, you can have them learn new things. And if you can somehow tie that into a narrative, it's easier for people to pick up. And that, to me, that's, that's really important when I design a game is I, I really want to tie in the gameplay features into something that someone can relate to in real life. Hi everyone, it's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. Our next guest designs new worlds and realities but his success lies in finding relatability in the characters he creates. He also speaks with wonderful clarity about the process of making a video game. So if you are a gamer, are related to or love somebody who is, then you will be interested in this episode. Mark Gomez is a video game industry veteran who currently serves as a designer and director at TikTok Games a full-service developer for hire that creates original games and games based on some of the biggest properties from Sony, Disney, Nickelodeon, Lucasfilm, and more. He was previously an art director and game designer at WayForward Technologies, one of the largest independent game development studios, maker of original games, as well as games based on characters found in comic books and film universes, including the likes of Batman, Adventure Time, X-Men, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He also served as game designer for Age of Learning, an ed tech company that caters to children with a series of award-winning reading and learning games. Mark graduated from CalArts, or the California Institute of the Arts, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in the field of character animation. So the global video game industry actually outpaced the music industry in 2020. Some estimates have it making more than the film and sports industries combined in some countries. So why isn't everyone paying attention? We'll find out from Mark today. Hi, Mark. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for agreeing to do this. No problem. It's yeah. exciting. I wanted to say congratulations because I think, uh, you know, as we think about what's happening globally, uh, a lot of industries didn't have it so good last year, but I feel like your industry is one where I'm just seeing like 20% growth across the board. You know? Oh yeah, we, we yeah. totally dodged the bullet on that one. <laughs> yeah, so I guess before we start, because um, I have a lot of uh, questions about kind of how you got into the industry, but can you talk about where you are in your pandemic arc at the moment? Well, I mean, just like you said, um, during the pandemic, a lot of industries have had to stop production or stop work. But with the gaming industry, you know, a lot of the development we can do is just on a computer, which you can do from home. I think the only issues that we have are when it comes to communication and trying to collaborate with others. But you know, as we're learning how to use Zoom, as we're learning how to do this chat that we're doing right now, you know, we're, we're finding ways around it and it's been very useful. And at the same time, like you mentioned, the industry has been growing a lot during this pandemic time. 
you know, a lot of people are trying to find activities to do, ways to escape the pandemic, and you know, video games is one of the number one things that they turn to. So, it, it's been good in all different ways. Yeah, I was reading actually that. Well, these numbers are all from the U.S., so I don't know what they are like in other countries, maybe higher, but. In the U.S., apparently, four out of five of all consumers played a video game in the past six months. And <laughs> apparently, so you probably, you see the numbers. That's probably super believable to you. And there was actually a, the biggest spike in that, like, 60% growth was among those, like, 45 to 54 years old. Uh, it, it's crazy. If, if you're not in the video game industry, you assume that a lot of the industry is just young boys who want to play Fortnite or just shoot a lot of things. But, you know, with the mobile gaming industry, the number one audience that we're aiming for is 40 to 50 year old females. They're the number one group that is paying for the different games. And so a lot of the games cater to them. And speaking of, I guess, catering games to customers, I'm trying to envision how a game goes from the ideation stage slash concept stage. By the way, uh, just a disclaimer. So I grew up around people who played games, not professionally, more of casually, but like they're they're enthusiasts. So I guess it was the precursor to esports, except I wasn't paying. Like I would watch them play RPGs and sometimes. (laughs) So I know the plots of the various like Final Fantasies and I have occasionally dabbled in fighting and racing games. So if I'm using any of the wrong terminology, please correct me. I liken it to kind of growing up in a house where you heard a foreign language being spoken. <laughs> You're like familiar with the language, but you don't really speak. So I don't want to come I mean, up I, Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I grew up in the 80s and played a lot of the old games. So I'm not even up to date with all the current language. <laughs> okay, no, just correct me if I'm using the wrong language. So, <laughs> no so how does a game go from kind of the concept stage all the way to like, the final release? Can you talk us through that process? Because you've been um, involved in like almost uh, or all every stage of the, that process, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do a lot of the original concept pitches for our studio. And it depends on if you're doing a game that's either with a publisher or something that you're doing internally. That's just a, an indie game that the studio wants to make on their own. Uh, if you're working with a publisher, usually they'll come at you with an idea that they want to try and harvest. Like... Um, you know, we really want to hit this audience and we really think this type of game is the direction we want to go. Can you guys develop an idea based on this property or based on this type of gameplay? And so that's usually the, the basis that we start creating ideas for publishers. If we're doing something internal, it's more of, hey, do you want, what do we enjoy and what do we want to make? And I think it's just a matter of each studio has its own vetting process for do they think it's going to work out? How do we prove that it's fun? And there's different steps and checkpoints along the way where you try to see, do we green light it past this point? And do we green light it past this point? And usually those checkpoints are things like proof of concept, you know, let's, or like even before proof of concept, let's see a deck that shows the timeline that I'll take to finish this, the basic idea behind it, do we like it? Do we green light it to make a proof of concept? And then the proof of concept is like a basic demo of the gameplay using just basic shapes or, or something just to make sure that the idea behind the game is actually fun. 
And then if it passes that, then, okay, let's do a vertical slice. And a vertical slice is usually like, I think it's referring to like a, a slice of a pie. So when you cut into a pie, just for one slice of it, you can see a little bit of the crust, a little bit of the top, some of the filling, the bottom crumble. And then so you get a little bit of a little bit of everything in a little bite-sized chunk. And so that's kind of the next step that you want to see. Uh, what does it look like if we have all the art, all of the sound and gameplay for just like one level? And if that's fun, then let's take it to the next step, which usually goes to alpha, beta, and finally to the released product. Sure. So as kind of a designer and director, what is your role throughout the project? So in the beginning, I would make the, the high level concept either internally or with a publisher. Uh, when that gets signed off on, I start doing wireframes and different design documents. Some companies just have a really big GDD, which is a game design document Bible that um, everybody takes a look at that has all of the different features of the game and just like instructions on, on how to approach them. So for me, I, I usually will do things like wireframes. It'll show like diagrams showing, you know, from this screen, it'll go to that screen and from this screen it connects. It's just like a, a tree showing all of the different connections between each screen. Um, and then I'll go into detail with like a slide deck that just shows, you know, step-by-step step the different screens, um, a basic layout of, of what you see on those screens. And then that's, that's mainly the design aspect of things. But after I'm done with that, since we're a, a medium-sized company, I also do direction, which is when people take a look at those designs, whether they be programming, the art team, or uh, level design team, they'll then do the implementation, and I then review the implementation and make sure that it's, it's the way I envisioned it. Okay. And then how, I guess, how has your role changed over time? Because after you graduated from art school, I mean, you don't go straight into becoming a director. So can you maybe talk about the intermediate steps that you went through before <laughs> becoming a designer? Because I would like to understand what does a, the game development process look like from different roles? So maybe you can talk about some of the roles you've taken, what your day would have looked like if you were in those roles. How I got to this point is very unconventional to how it's done now. So when I got out of school, that was back in the day when there weren't many schools that specialized in game design, in game art or game anything. So I, I went to animation school and I, I only found out that I liked games and game design after working at a game company. So after I got out of school, one thing that I knew I enjoyed doing was uh, storyboarding. And a lot of the things that I learned in storyboarding tie into what I do for game design. It's a lot of figuring out the flow of the narrative and how to get from the beginning to the end and just kind of solving the, the little issues that you need to fix along the way. And when I got into my first job, I, I started out as a QA tester just because I was looking for something to just get a foot in the door. But once I did that, they knew that I had an art background. And so when they had availability to do some art, I started doing some animation, some background designs. I then dabbled in level designing, which again, 
I could see the, the narrative storytelling and creating levels, um, especially for platformers like Mario type games. And then from there, I, I got the opportunity to start directing games. So that, that kind of path is not very typical, but it's, it's something that I got to touch a lot of different aspects of the industry and, and kind of what helps me know how to be a better game director is knowing the different things that everybody has to do. And so it, it's helpful in the, in the way I approached it. As far as people now, you know, there's a lot of schools that offer approaches to game design, a lot of books that you can read on game design. So there's a, a lot more different avenues that you can take. Uh, would you recommend actually being so specialized early on, like going straight into game design or majoring in something that had a specific application in gaming? Or would you recommend something broader, such as, you know, like you did, like going to art school, taking animation, which can be applied to anything really, right? Not necessarily gaming. Yeah, I don't know if specializing in game design, like I, I don't know how to recommend it best for people who want to go into game design. I know a lot of people who are game designers who started either in level design or started as producers. So a lot of these things are coming in from many different directions. The only way that I can see that you can test the waters as a game designer, because that's another thing is that a lot of designers are people that, you know, I knew this guy and he did well doing this position. And so maybe he can do game design. But if you're trying to get in straight as a game designer, an approach I can suggest is um, there, there are a lot of independent communities where you can try making smaller game titles just in a group of friends and work as a game designer in that kind of role on a small project. And that project you can present to people sort of like a portfolio. And that way they have a better idea of what you can do rather than just say, you know, I went to school for game design. Here's my, you know, my resume on, on what I've learned. But I know some schools will also have games that you do at the school. And so, again, that, that might be something that, that's very useful. But if you don't go to a game school, if it's something that you want to try and learn on your own, then... You can, you can take a look at a lot of um, different communities. I know there's this one on Discord called Brackies that I found, and, and there's a lot of people who are posting for positions um, just to work on hobby development with other people. And it's, it's a good way to get your foot in the door if you don't want to go the school route. Sure. You're, the company that, uh, that you're with right now uh, is based in LA, but you actually opened an outpost in Manila, is, is that right? Back in 2018? Yeah, yeah. We have a, um, a second branch out in Manila that we do. So, uh, we have several titles going on at once, and one of them, one or two, will usually be done into Philippines. Completely from start to finish, or only certain parts of the game? I think there, there might be one title that is being done start to finish, but sometimes we'll start off some titles here, and then once the game is live, um, especially for mobile games, there's live development for additional features and that kind of development we can send over to the Philippines. Sure. But now that you, you mentioned people are working through Zoom, you know, working from home slash working from anywhere, you don't necessarily need a physical office, no? So have you worked with people in kind of other countries, whether on a freelance basis or kind of subcontracting certain parts of the 
process? Is that something that you're kind of open to or where you see the rest of the industry going? Yeah, like with our Philippine branch, even though that they're doing some parts of the development um, on one of the titles, I'm still doing some design elements that they're working on for the programming elements. So I, I have meetings at the end of my day here. That's the start of their day there. And so we just coordinate wherever we have a time overlap and just kind of understand what we're going to try and tackle for that day. Sure. I guess I was wondering, like, would you do you foresee a future where you kind of have virtual offices in other parts of the world if you wanted to you know, tap into a talent base? outside the U.S. and the Philippines also? We, we have been working with other groups in, in other countries, and we, we have individuals that we work with that are in other countries. So I think what, what the pandemic has done is it opened up our eyes, like you said, to, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to have everybody physically in the office. And, and it doesn't, mean just for positions that don't require a lot of communication. Positions that have a lot of communication can still work outside of the office. And that, that's the major thing that we discovered because a lot of times we will do freelance uh, work with people from other countries, but it's usually things where we define the project that we need and they do it and then they deliver it to us and it's done. Um, but now we're discovering that there's a lot more ways that we can have roles that require a lot more communication that can be done um, with people outside of the office. Interesting. Yeah, because I think it's a, there's a growing interest in it, not just among age groups, but among in, in different countries, depending on kind of how gaming is perceived in your country, kind of there are different reactions to uh, hearing that someone works in video games. As this becomes a more mainstream career path also, across the world, right? What advice would you give to people who were maybe trying to convince their families or their parents, assuming that they were involved in that decision for choosing a major, choosing a career path? What if someone was not fully on board that idea of, you know, with their other kid joining the industry, how would you try to convince them? Or what tips would you give the kids so that they can talk? You're not going to convince the parents, but what tips would you give the child so that the child could then talk to the parent? I, I would have them look up the job on Glassdoor or whatever site would have proposed um, incomes for these different positions. Really specify the position that you want and show the, <laughs> the type of living that you can make off of it. Um, I think the, the thing that just sounds bad when you mention it to family members is if you just say something like, I want to do something in video games. To me, that just sounds like, oh, you like video games and you want to play video games and somehow make money playing video games. I remember when I first started in the video game industry, when I would say I worked in video games, I had some people ask, uh, do you work at a GameStop? <laughs> so, and, and so it's like they don't understand what, what it means exactly. So if you if you really were interested in the video game industry, you really should specify what part of it you want to get into. And if, if you have parents who just don't like the word video games, you know, just say, do you want, I want to be a computer engineer or do you want, I want to be <laughs> an, an animator or something of that sort. You don't have to specify the word video games, but you know that one of video games can be one of those paths. 
Sure. I mean, everyone, I think in the industry and everyone who plays knows that it's a massive kind of cultural economic force. Uh, we don't have to get into you. You talked about people who want to play it for a living. There are actually esports stars, slash, you know, who are yeah. making more than like, you know, the top 10 earners I know combined. Right. So it's, yeah. not, it's definitely a, it's definitely become a viable way to make money right now. However, I, I do think there's still that stigma associated with it. I, I looked up some numbers actually before uh, I, I got on this call with you and I, I was just looking at how to kind of drive the message home, how much this industry was worth, what the numbers looked like, right? So everyone talked about one of the biggest movie box office releases of all time, which was Avengers Endgame, which grossed, I think, $1.2 billion worldwide in its opening weekend, so across three days back in 2019. And then, you know, everyone was talking about that, but then they failed to realize that I think Grand Theft Auto V, when it was released 2013, like six years before Avengers opened, actually smashed, you know, that 1 billion sales record over its three-day release. And I think on its first day, it grossed over 800 million uh, in 24 hours. So it was like the fastest um, selling entertainment, not just game, but entertainment product um, in history. But kind of nobody was talking about that. So I guess the question is, why do you think that for those not in the know that it's so underappreciated? Hmm. I think it, it might just be the, a stigma that comes with video games. I know Joe Rogan had his podcast where um, he got a lot of heat for the way he was talking about video games and esports because he was comparing esports to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is something that he's into. And so he was saying, you know, with when a kid goes to um, classes to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then he gets good at it and then he eventually thinks, oh, do you know what? I can be an instructor and there's a future that comes from it where he says the kids that like video games will play video games and they'll just play more video games and it doesn't go anywhere. And I guess it's, it's that assumption that video games just equals laziness. It, it's not seen as a casual pastime or something that can be even considered a sport. And then, you know, you have people who talk about esports and it, I guess there's something like, I, I kind of understand a little bit of where they're coming from on certain things. Cause I also consider like, what is the longevity and what's the lifespan of a certain game? Because it, it just has to keep rolling and rolling on. Whereas, you know, basketball, baseball, it's, it's pretty much a basic rule set that slightly gets modified, but the game doesn't really change. And I can even say that for chess you know, chess is something that's just consistent, but are people going to be playing League of Legends, that version of it forever? Even StarCraft goes through iterations. And so I, I don't know what is the lifespan of a game and how do you build its legacy unless it just means going to the next game. Sure. But, so in, yeah. in terms of building something that lasts, because you are, I guess, uniquely positioned to make some of those calls in terms of what elements you can add to the game play. But, I mean, the factors within your control, obviously there are certain factors like outside your control in terms of what becomes big and what doesn't. But for you, what do you think makes a good, I guess, A, a character and what makes a good game in general? 
Well, again, since I came from an animation background and I'm really into storyboarding and character design and character development, for me, what makes a good character is is making sure that that character grows over over time. And if you can display that kind of growth through gameplay, or maybe not just gameplay, but through the the cinematic narrative of your game, you know that that would be great because it's not the easiest thing to do with the game if the game is about you know, here are some basic abilities that your character has. So you know you can't really vary it along the way, but you can have that character grow. You can have them learn new things, and if you can somehow tie that into a narrative, it's easier for people to pick up. And that, to me, that's that's really important when I design a game. Is I, I really want to tie in the gameplay features into something that someone can relate to in real life. So if if there's something that gives you know more power to the character, how can I explain it in a way that the player can understand in in a cinematic sort of narrative kind of way? Because the more you can tie it into the universe and what's going on with that character, the easier it is for them to understand rather than just to memorize new button functions. Sure. So it's really like a film or a book in a way also where kind of good storytelling transcends all else. Yeah. It's and, like, and character development. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I'm telling a story, what kind of setting should I put them in that will help explain the type of growth I want for this character? What kind of situation should I put them in that will help push the development of the character in the way I want them to go in? And so all of those things, if you plan ahead and it makes sense to the story, then it makes for a good movie, it makes for a good game, all of that. You know, speaking of movies, there have been times when you've been asked to develop games based on characters that already exist in other universes. But I know that your studio and your, uh, you have also been involved in making original games, right? Can yeah. you talk about maybe some of the pros and cons of both? What do you find more creatively fulfilling? I, I would assume it's the original content, but I'd be curious to hear what kind of creative uh, fulfillment there is from using existing uh, intellectual property or IP. With existing IPs, there are limitations to what you can do with the characters because the publisher that owns that property has rules that they want to stick to. And so you got to just be careful when trying to do something with those characters. I, I remember when we were making some SpongeBob games, there were certain rules that they were allowed to do on the TV show that we couldn't do in video games because the player is controlling the character. So even though SpongeBob can have fire in the SpongeBob TV show, we weren't allowed to have fire in in the video games because it's something that if a child is controlling it, it's almost like they can set fires and they're physically enacting these scenarios that are dangerous rather than just observing it. And so having those kind of limitations is hard, but I, I think the fun part is if you like the IP, then you'll really enjoy working on the title. And so that that's the nice part about it. I mean, you um, got to design for Batman, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed watching Batman Brave and the Bold. It was one of the cartoon series, I think, somewhere in the 2000s. 
and to be able to work on the game for the Nintendo Wii for that title, we got to hand draw the whole thing and work with the voice actors from the show. So a lot of that was really fun. It was almost like making a TV show. Nice. Yeah, it was things like that that make it really fun to work with an existing IP. Yeah. Maybe can you talk about, because you've mentioned different terms earlier, you know, like publisher. Can you describe the relation of what your company does to the publishers? What are some examples of publishers and what's the role of each one? Well, I can talk like when I, when I was talking about SpongeBob, the publisher would be Nickelodeon or sometimes Nickelodeon works together with a, another company that specializes in game development like THQ. And they will then work together to let us use that property and make a game that they have in mind. And so we run the designs by THQ, but then we also run the character designs the scenarios that they're going to go through, the narrative through Nickelodeon to make sure that they're okay with that. But a lot of that is just working together, making sure that everybody's getting out the product that they want. Because in the end, the publisher's job is they want to see how how do we make money off of this product. And our job is to, one, make sure that it, it appeases that, but at the same time, adding as much creative input and whatever we think the audience would like to see is our job. Sure, but what about those games that you self-publish? Because I saw that Adventures of Pip, which TikTok released, actually launched in 2015 after a Kickstarter campaign. So can you talk about the self-publishing process too? I think the the part with self-publishing that's harder is it depends on, are you working on by yourself? Are you working with your studio? What is your budget? What is your timeline? I think with our company trying to balance out the budget and timeline is a lot more stressful on a project that you're doing internally than something you're doing with a publisher. With a publisher, you give them your budget, they give you a timeline, and then you work together to finesse out the details on that. If you're doing it internally, then it's kind of like, what is our goal here? It's like, everybody wants to make a good game, but you got to set certain limitations so that you know that you can put something out in time, uh, you know, especially with a company, you want to make sure that the product makes money. And so it, there's, there's this balance internally that's a little bit harder to figure out than working with an outside company. If yeah. you're doing it just by yourself or with just some friends, you know, those things are a little bit more freeing. You have unlimited time. Everybody, if they're just working on a you know, everybody's sharing profits if you do eventually release the game, then everybody's working for free, there is no budget. And so things like that can really grow until you just feel like, hey, do it, let's stop now. And it's just a matter of knowing that what it takes to make a good product. So the video game industry was one of many that had to go through a digital transformation during this pandemic. Another field that's had to go online is education, which is challenging in a place like the Philippines where internet connectivity and access to gadgets are not readily available for all students across the board. Out of roughly 28 million students that are enrolled in our educational system, only about 6.5 million students have access to the internet. And many of these are using computer shops or internet cafes to go online, which are not ideal during this time. Millions more students have no way of going online at all. 
So our friends at AHA Learning Center are working on solutions to ensure that no learner gets left behind. AHA Learning Center is an award-winning nonprofit that provides the best education to those who have the least in life in the Philippines. They currently directly support hundreds of public school students from the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in Makati and Tondo, and they've served 20,000 students with free after-school tutoring and mentoring programs over the years. Since the pandemic began and schools had to shut down, the folks at AHA have done everything to make sure that the learning can continue. AHA has started a free teleradio program. That's a free TV and radio show. They've pioneered distance learning models that work in our current setup where connectivity is a problem. And they've delivered countless hours of teacher training in order to make an impact on countless more students across the nation. Their methods have been adopted by the Philippine Department of Education, the Office of the Vice President, the public school districts slash local government units nationwide, including the city of Pasig. They're basically doing nation building on the budget of a nonprofit. If you would like to be part of the solution, do visit their webpage at ahalearningcenter.com. That's A-H-A learningcenter.com to see how you can donate or volunteer. They're accepting cash donations to get their kids school supplies, laptops, and internet access. For as low as 200 Philippine pesos or four US dollars, you can make a real difference in the lives of these children. Donations can come from anywhere in the world as they take credit card and PayPal. They're also accepting volunteers and sponsors for their various programs, including my personal favorite, their Barangay Coding Program, a free basic programming course for kids that's the first of its kind in the country. It's developed with a coding school from Singapore and computer science volunteers in the Philippines. And this program teaches public school kids digital literacy, critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, innovation, and communication. And now back to Mark, who's going to tell us about how he's applying these very skills at work. Thanks in advance for your support, guys. Yeah, so I wanted to follow up on two things that you mentioned. So one is, you know, budgets and timelines, right? The higher up you've gone in your career, the longer you've worked in the industry, would you say it's fair to say that more of your job is spent making sure that you're releasing products that launch on budget, on spec, on time and hitting your timeline or hitting your milestones, right? Kind of like a project manager slash producer in a way. Is that fair to say? Or is there another person in that team who does that and that you work alongside? Yeah, um, usually on a project, I'll work with a producer and that person usually will set up the roadmap for when everything is due, but they'll run it by me to make sure that the dates that they've put and the, the things that need to be done within those dates is actually accurate. And so I'll take a look at their timelines and I'll say, Yo, this, there's no way this can be done within this time. You need to spread this out here and there. But they do a lot of that and they do a lot of the check-ins on how people are doing, if things are getting done on time. So I, I don't have to do too much of that, but I, I do sit in a bit on the early development and making sure that the budgets and timeline are accurate to what the producer has shown to me. Sure. How did you develop those skills since, I mean, you, you were very focused on animation, I think earlier in your career, like how would you suggest, I guess, 
what I'm hearing is that if you want to kind of advance, you need to acquire other skills also, right? Like managing people, managing you know, budgets yeah. and timelines, you know, adulting and all that. So how would you, not, not that designing isn't adulting, but you know what I mean? Like the, <laughs> the less, kind of the less sexy parts of what you think yeah. about when designing a game. Uh, for me, like what, what helped me understand the way that some of the understanding the budget and, and how to work with timelines, I before doing game direction, I was doing a lot of art direction and I would work with, you know, just a smaller art team, but I would know kind of what people can get done within what time and what their freelance budget was and how many people I can get to work on what during that time. So working on just the art side was helpful for me to understand kind of that process and then doing that over an entire game including the programming team including art and you know graphic design and level designers it, it all carries over in the same sort of way at the same time you can you can talk to those people and just make sure you ask a lot of questions and just kind of understand they'll help you out with telling you hey Joan, I can't do this within this time and you know, it's just making sure you communicate with everybody and fully understand. After a while, you kind of get an idea of how long it takes to do different things. Sure. What percentage of your time would you say is actually spent on the art animation design part versus the non-design animation and art portion? So I, I think like my typical day would start with a stand-up with, with the entire team that Everybody would explain what they're doing throughout the day. I just check in to make sure that it's accurate to what we want to get done. After that, I, I usually spend a lot of time working on design documents. This is usually at the front half of the game. My role kind of shifts from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. So towards the beginning, there's a lot of design documents, a lot of meetings, a lot of working on the backlog of tasks with the producer to make sure that we have captured all of the things that need to be detailed out for the next sprint. I don't know if you know the terms of sprint and scrum and all of those things, but it's, it's a process that a lot of companies do to make sure that the right amount of work is coming out and that we're going to hit our deadlines. And so we have these sprints, which are two week periods of time that we just make sure that what we have planned out gets done within that time. And then during the time that the team is developing that, me and the producer will start building out the next few sprints to make sure that everything is going to get done as we are planning it to. So a lot of that is being done throughout the game development, but the design documentation is also taking up half of my time. Towards the back end of the game, a lot more time is spent reviewing the builds, making comments, and you know, closing out the different uh, tasks that I've reviewed. Sure. Okay, so about half now. I am familiar with Sprint and Scrum, but only because I worked in startups where the product was a website. So we had a similar approach to kind of uh, releases and development sprints as, as well. Uh, and then really, yeah, new, new features and, and so on. But I, I would be really interested to see what that looked like on a, in a game, uh, in the world of animation and, and game design. Because I had a boss actually before I worked at a consulting company and we were doing a project for a corporate client that involved project management. And he said, if you want to see the best project managers, he said, they're all at Pixar. He said, you go do a tour behind the scenes. So he's like this animation studio because once they set a release date for one of the entertainment properties or movies, 
kind of they're, they're not moving that goalpost like they need to be in theaters by this day so they will work backward in order to meet that goal and I would imagine that for something like releasing a game it's the same especially games that are eagerly awaited by a built-in fan base already right yeah uh, I think a, a lot of people have seen the horror show I mean sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't I know that cyberpunk has gotten a lot of flack for releasing when it wasn't ready but I, I know that there, there's been some issues also with Pixar. I know the development of Brave went through a few directors, a uh, few major revisions of the overall narrative of it. So there's good and bad. And it, using the same process doesn't always work. Gotcha. Um, yeah, a lot of the times that we do the Scrum method, it's a lot easier if everything is very much planned out ahead. But if you're doing something where you're doing a lot of experimentation on some designs that are new that haven't been done before, then there's a lot more chances that it's like, you know, this didn't work. We got to scrap the next sprint and revise how we're going to approach this segment of the game. Sure. I guess since this podcast is called Occupational Hazards, I wanted to actually go into some of the the hazards because I remember when you were, you can, we want to talk about the highs also. I mean, we don't want to depress people, but. (laughs) I remember specifically when, when you told me that you worked in video games and I said, that's so interesting. And, you know, a lot of people have this as a dream job. And I remember you were, you weren't joking. You, you actually said, well, it's actually, I think you were talking about your experience as a QA tester. And you said, well, yeah, it's not that exciting when you have to play a game for a living, but you know, first you have to play it running and, and then you have to play it <laughs> jumping and then you have to play it like walking one step and kicking because you're looking for bugs in the gameplay yeah. process, right? And then you have to do that whole thing, but backwards. And you're, I was like, what? You're just playing the whole level again and again. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. So I guess maybe could you talk about some of the, the like your favorite parts about what you do and then the least favorite parts or the less glamorous parts that other people may not know about? That, that's funny. The part that you brought up is, is QA testing because a lot of people who maybe don't know anything about the video game industry but like to play video games and just assume, hey, do I want to I want to play games for a living? That that sounds like what a QA tester would do, but it's also the most tedious, painful job as well because you're not playing the game to enjoy it. You're playing the game to break it. And sometimes to break the game, you got to do the most mundane things like rub against a wall for 10 minutes, just trying to see if your collision is going to fly through the wall or break something. And it's really insane the kind of things you do, and it's not fun at all. So the time that I spent doing QA, you would keep testing, keep testing, and keep trying to break the game. You'd also have to try to master the game and then do things that are really not fun. But that's just one position. I think overall, if I had to say what are the hard aspects of working in the game industry, as much as a company would like to avoid overtime or long hours, uh, you always have times that you really need to crunch on getting things done. Uh, There's always going to be tight deadlines here and there. And a big thing is if you're the kind of person who needs immediate gratification when you do something, when you're working on a game that's not gonna come out for a year, two years, three years, you're not really going to see the fruits of your labor for a really long time. So those kind of things are really, you know, it, it depends on the type of person if those are things that you like. 
I know sometimes we'll have animators who come in and want to work on games. And it, it just seems like the deadlines and the type of things that you do is a lot more restrictive than what it would be working on like a TV show or something where you're storyboarding or character designing, things that are a lot more creative and imaginative. If you're working with a product where this is what your character does and it's very limited, then it, it might not be as glamorous to them as, as doing something on TV. Sure. On the other hand, I guess, what are some of the, the best parts of what you do or your favorite parts? I, I love game design. So having come from animation and storyboarding and, and really enjoying storyboarding, what I like most about it is to me, developing a story, it's almost like developing a melody. You know, you, you have a place where you start, the melody goes somewhere and it always ends kind of where it started at like the bass chord. And so when I see a story and I see where someone's taking it, there's, there's only a, so many different ways that it can end, or there, there will be one way that will feel good, that will feel satisfying. And I feel the same way with game design. It's like there are paths that you can take, but it's almost like math where there are, there are answers that are the most ideal answers. And I like to try to find those. And when I come up with solutions to different design elements that people are trying to figure out, it, it's fun for me to, to do that for the different titles. Yeah, so it's creativity in, a, in, in all forms, right? <laughs> Problem solving and as well. Yeah, it's, as, it's yeah. like making puzzles. It's, it's a game in itself, but <laughs> I, I like the, <laughs> the psychology behind trying to understand what people are going to want to do in a game. I, I think trying to understand people and what people desire, what are people's motivations, that kind of thing, just in a design overall sense is, is fun. If you could go back in time though, what would you do differently about maybe your approach to school or, or your early career? Uh, slash, what advice would you give to somebody who was in your shoes and just about to start out? If I went back in time. Or would, um, you, would you do anything differently? Yeah, um, I, I think going to school straight from high school, I treated college in the first few years like high school, where it's like, you know, if I don't really like a class, you know, I won't try, won't impress the teacher, it doesn't matter. It, it's just school. But these people who are teaching you are ending up going to be the people that you work with in the future. And even your classmates, making sure that you network with everybody, make sure you build those connections because everybody is going to be able to help you grow in the future. And if I treated it a little bit more like that, if I understood that a bit more when I was younger, then I think that that's something that, that can help you later on is because a lot of the jobs you get are, are based on just knowing people people who recommend you to their company saying, you know, this person's good at this or that. And that ties back into the part that I was talking about with, you know, find meetup groups or find discords where people are working on indie projects and get to know people in those groups, talk to them, go to meetups, like right now, online virtual meetups, just have discussions with them, just get to know people in the industry. And the more that they get to know you, the, the more that you can 
do like side projects with people and then the more they'll understand the different talents that you have. Okay, makes sense. I guess going back to what you were saying earlier about some of the challenges, no, I want to end this segment on this note. Like, don't pursue this as a career if you blank. Yeah, I guess talking about the delayed gratification is like, you know, there's certain jobs that you do and at the end of the day, it's done. You know, I, I'm a baker, I baked a bunch of pies and I sold it, I'm done. <laughs> but this pie that you're making that's a game is going to take three years to bake. And if that's not you, then I, I wouldn't go into it. And secondly, if really tight deadlines, um, trying to work off of roadmaps and we need to get certain things done in a certain amount of time. And there's a lot of companies that, you know, the scrum method is really built for assembly lines. And if you're more of a free spirit that just wants to explore and take your time. There aren't too many companies that have that time luxury to do that. You know, there, there isn't too much exploration or experimentation with design. So you'd really have to work at a big company that has a lot more time to spend in that. And, you know, it's just something to think about. Sure. So I'll take a break from some of the occupational hazards and just ask a few questions. I actually crowdsourced them from the audience because apparently work from home, because most people are setting up home offices now, they're actually looking to the gaming industry for inspiration. So I got a question, uh, what chair do you use for your gaming and your workstation? What chair? Well, yeah, right do now, you use a special chair? Actually, the chair I'm using right now, I took from the office and brought home because the chair I had at home was not comfortable. So it is a pretty good chair, but I also bought a standing desk. So, you know, I'm sitting a lot more since I wake up in the morning, can just go straight to my desk and then can just sit here all throughout the night since I don't have to go home. So getting a standing desk is going to help me stand up a lot more. Okay. Do you have any recommended accessories? You know, they call them peripherals, yes? Like special mouse or a brand or an accessory that you particularly recommend for your setup? My setup, I've got a Cintiq, but that's mainly because I, I'll draw once in a while. So I don't know if you know what a Cintiq is. It's from the Wacom, but it's a drawing tablet okay. with a screen monitor. And so I think the most important thing for me is having at least two screens because I, I have a lot of documentation and because I do a lot of game design stuff, I will usually need one screen to have something that I'm referencing and then another screen where I'm writing down my documentation. So the more screens, the better. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite game of all time? You know, I, I have a top 30 list oh. um, that, I, that I have everybody at the company add their own entry. And what I like about it is that you get to see, it, it sort of gets you to understand everybody a little bit more on, on where they're coming from. So when you collaborate with them, you know what to reference, you know what is their inspirations. I think for me, my favorite games are all coming from PlayStation and earlier <laughs> So Final Fantasy VII, the original one, I think that's really high on my list. Uh, Zelda for the Nintendo 64, um, some of the old Mario games. But right now I'm really enjoying Hades, which 
is is a you know a game that came out just recently. And I of course play a lot of mobile games since I'm in mobile game development. All right. Uh, what's your proudest achievement? In a word, <laughs> or in a phrase. <laughs> in a phrase. Proudest achievement in a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I I really like. I, I made a few games where I really like the art direction that I went with it. As far as game design, there's always things that I wish I could have added more on top of. There's never been a game that I feel like, do you know I got to add all the features I wanted. A lot of times with game design, you're you're having to decide which of your babies you want to kill first. And oh, no. oh no, okay. <laughs> I don't know where we got that term, but it's something that we say a lot. But it's like, which feature do you want to cut because of time? and it's, it's never something that I feel completely satisfied with, unlike the art direction, which, you know, once, once it starts going down a direction, you kind of just make sure that it sticks to that. And I, I've liked a lot of the things I've done from Batman, Brave and the Bold, Dwayne's yeah. Blob, even Adventures of Pip, some of the approaches to that were nice. And so, uh, uh, and especially right now, I, I'm working on this game called Bark that's about to come out. And it's another hand-drawn game that has some cinematics that, really are more like you know animated tv shows and stuff like that so something that i'm really happy the way it turned out we'll link to some of your uh, projects in the show notes i guess as a final like to wrap up the discussion I've, I've really learned so much from talking to you but if people wanted to get involved with your projects or just find out what you were um, releasing next how do they find you online or your company online yeah, you can go to tiktokgames.com. That website will take you to their Twitter page and you can see the updates there. Um, I also have my Twitter. I think it's M-A-R-C-Y-A-Y-T-T-G for TikTok Games. And then I'll, I'll sometimes post links to the current project that I'm working on. But yeah, that, that's mainly, I use Twitter mainly for video game development stuff. Anything okay. else is just personal. <laughs> sure, sure. So yeah, just the work-related one. Uh, we actually got a question as well. Maybe we'll save this for the show notes, but we got a question about representation in the industry and kind of what percentage of the designers or directors were, were female. Um, maybe what I could do is ask you to send me some of your favorite articles slash perspectives from females in the, in the industry as well, if, sure. if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, but... Oh. Yeah, all in all, this was like really enlightening. And I'm glad that, you know, you guys are thriving. So congratulations. And giving, yeah, thank a, you. Yeah, and giving a bit of kind of hope and joy to some people that, you know, um, want to escape their or deal with the limitations of their current uh, yeah, situa it was fun. situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah hopefully so it's, it's useful. If, if anyone has any other questions, uh, just let me know. Yes, thank you so much, Mark. Have a good rest right, of the day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well. Do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode. Bye.